Leslie Claret. Hey, Leslie, it's John Blakeman. But, you know, not really. Yeah, hey, John. How you faring? Pretty good. Good to hear. Leslie? Yeah. My dad said you've been in prison. Yeah, John. I'm sorry for mentioning that, if you didn't want me to mention that. I don't mind. I was guilty. Did my time, and that was that, hey? And you were a dentist in there? Dental assistant, yes. Cool. It was not cool, but, uh, okay. Why are you asking? Can you pull some of my teeth? Can I what? Can you pull some of my teeth? I don't care which ones. Yeah, I can, I guess. Any particular reason? Yeah, I have to get out of Paris. I think things are about to get pretty fucked up. Is now okay? Yeah. Thank you. Well, hello there. Welcome, everybody, to Macmillan Men, the show where we talk about the Amazon Prime show, Patriot. Today we arrive at episode seven of season two, Loaded. That's the very end of the episode, and I have to say, like, this is a pretty cliffhangery show for me. I am usually very much wanting to hit play on the next episode, but maybe never have I wanted to hit play on the next episode more than I did after that scene you just heard. But I didn't. I came into this room, turned on this microphone to record this podcast. Maybe never has an episode of Patriot been more fresh in my mind than right now. Hi, by the way, my name is Luke Burbank. I mean, not really Luke Burbank, but you get it. Right over there is Andrew Walsh, my fellow McMillan, my fellow Patriot enthusiast and uh, aspiring McMillan man. Hey, buddy. I'm an ex- I'm a, I'm a, you have Hello? me wordless. I'm an Hello. aspiring McMillan man. man. I don't know. I mean, I, are you, I mean, are any of us, do you really, do you, do you even understand the structural dynamics of flow, bro? Let me do you put even it get this things way. from point A to point B. I, I love a cold one. Uh, okay. I like to go duck hunting. Um, And, yeah, I like things to go from A to B. So I would say that I am All right, well, then you are a McMillan man. um, Let me just say at the top here, my impression of this episode, as I got done watching it for the second time uh, last night, Mm -hmm. the first time I watched it, of course, was a year or so ago, so I didn't remember a lot of it. This is, I think, the darkest episode of the entire series. We know that this show is imbued with sadness and and grief and pain and all of these things, but one of the things that also draws us to it is the way it mixes in, you know, dark comedy, black humor, and or maybe uh, black comedy and dark humor. But um, this has so little comic relief in this episode, except for that scene at the very end that we just played and heard. And there's there's one with the Kandahar dad and son that is also puts a bit of a smile on my face. But this was, and I don't mean from a filmmaking perspective, I just mean... Although it was viewing, actually kind of dark. It was I literally dark it as well. In yes. the daylight, I had to close all of the curtains in my house 
or in the TV room anyway, because it was, you know, a lot of it's unfolding at night. But yeah, but it was like thematically, but it was like tough to watch is what I was going to say. Um, Like, again, not like it was badly made, but just that it's just this one did not offer much levity and you feel kind of exhausted after watching it, or at least I did. You know that this bad thing is going to happen, which is John is going to almost die, potentially, getting into this compound, even though he is in a massively compromised state, even by his standards on the show, which is his resting level of being compromised physically and mentally is like a six on a scale of one to ten. That's just like he gets up in the morning at a six, although that would assume he sleeps or eats, which I don't think he does. So this is, you know, you just kind of have this dread, the whole episode about him and that electric fence and the dogs. You notice, by the way, all the training coming into play in this episode, uh, which uh, which we'll talk about. It actually starts, though, with Tom being debriefed and they're asking him how the detective was aware of him. And he says due to a catastrophic breach of departmental regulations. And I guess we learned that that breach was tom at the hospital using his real name to get john to visit john or to take a look at john's scans after john has been in a crash hit by can you believe it wallace kandahar the dad opposite world tom tavner except less shitty at being a father in my opinion um Anyway, is that is that the is that the uh, catastrophic breach? What what cat, there's so many catastrophic breaches of departmental regulation. It's hard to know which one Tom is referring to. This is a rough thing for me to say, but mm. uh, to push back a little bit on the argue on the argument that he's a better dad, I would say that John has been through hell, but he's still alive. And um, this other guy is like he's done. He's basically put. Isn't his... that the luck of the draw, though? Is Michael Jordan was Michael Jordan's dad a better basketball dad than Sam Bowie, who went before him in the draft that year, or is it just the luck of the draw? Yeah, I mean, and, and is it you know those two came face to face, and John ended up killing him, and it's a dark thing for me to say, but I do wonder if he's a better dad or just a dad who lost his son after putting his son in harm's way, and so therefore is a more mm. sympathetic character. Um, uh, I, I don't no, know. I'm I just would, throwing that out there. I would say that when that whole conversation between Wallace Kandahar, who's drunk. Or mildly buzzed, and tea John. You should stick to tea. Where he's, where he's. What is he talking about with that? What is that? I didn't understand what that was a reference to when he kept saying kind of quietly to himself about being a tea man. Oh, his son. When in the in the previous scene, while he's actually drinking at the pub, his son keeps saying, "Why oh. are you drinking a cold one? Like I love a cold right. one, but you're not a cold one. It looks like you're a kid drinking medicine. You should stick to tea. You're a tea man." And then the dad gets right. drunk and he's wandering the street saying. Should have stuck to tea. Ah. I'm a tea man. Oh, I should have stuck to tea. Got it. Okay. Um, but no, I, I I think Wallace Kandahar. Now, I guess we can't we can't know how much he's shaped by the loss of his son, um, who I guess they don't know if the son's dead. They just can't find him, right? Or does he get pulled out of that river? I think that they know he's dead. But it's hard to know how much of that shaped his personality. But he's being so kind to John. He's calling him dear to the point yeah. where John is. In his state, reflecting on how kind this person is being to him, which is my ultimate argument for um, for, for Wallace being a better father than, than Tom. But not to, not to spend too much time litigating that, um, do you think that – what is the catastrophic breach that you think Tom is 
referring to? I think it's the signing of his name as Tom okay. Tavner. And it also answers the question that I asked at the beginning of last episode, which was why did we see a close-up of John holding a piece of uh, paper that is some sort of medical document with his dad's signature on it? I was confused about that because I'd completely forgotten about the hospital scene that we see this time. Uh, and so, yeah, I think that they signaled that in the last one, and then and then we see what happened. He had to make a decision. Was he going to be a dad or clandestine? And instead he... Um, he decides to sign his name Tom Tavner and to go see his son. I think they were admitting papers, maybe. Here's the only, you know, part about that that I'm not quite sure about the uh, realism of it. Couldn't he just said Tom Lakeman? I mean, they think that John's name is John Lakeman. They're calling John Lakeman's family. So maybe John has more extensive fake ID and... Uh, they're not going to let Tom in unless he has a name. Now I'm just trying to figure out why they would have him do that. Like, That's unless Tom point. has a name that matches his ID. Because I would feel like at that hospital at that moment, you could probably write Mickey Mouse and go mm-hmm. in. But maybe maybe not. Well, it depends if you have the family pass. Does he have the Mickey Mouse sure. family pass? Right, exactly. Do you have ID to prove right. that you are, in fact, Mickey Mouse? You uh, you raise a good point. You know, I hadn't thought of that. There's something that comes up later in the episode that I wanted to be nitpicky about, about whether uh, about its verisimilitude. But um, that is a good point. Why couldn't he have just put – it would have been – if we had just seen one scene where he has to also show his ID, that would have answered that question. But maybe part of it, too, is he is, in talking to Wallace Kandahar there, I feel like, again – it's just like he, I do think he's having a fatherly moment, and I do think he is genuinely worried about John. So maybe his brain is so scrambled mm-hmm. that the breach is that sure. he literally just forgot to write down a fake name because he's mm-hmm. he's he's totally out of his like CIA mentality, and he's in a I'm the dad of this person. You know what I mean? Because because and in fact, maybe that's what's even what they're trying to bring home is it. Because he could have gotten away with writing down Tom Lakeman or something, but he's just so out of sorts, which would be how you would be if you were a good father. You'd be out of sorts over your son being this hurt. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, but, yeah, I do think that's what the breach is, and so that kind of answers that uh, that question that we had from last episode. So we jump back in time there. We go back to Luxembourg five days ago. Again, this show is pretty I have to say, they're liberal with timelines. You forget that every, you forget that all of this, like John was trying to kill himself five days ago by riding his bike all murdered out. That was only five five days days ago. ago. It was five lifetimes ago. Yes, exactly. And then the scene that we've already talked about where Kaiman and his dad are in the bar. Do you think Wallace is drinking just because he's stressed or he's trying to fit in? Or why is he trying to force these cold ones down his, I say, cold ones like strong bad from the Homestar Runner lovers. After watching Kaiman, after the watching this show the first time, uh, Genevieve and I would go around the house trying to imitate him saying "cold one." There's something so charming about the way he says it. And I cannot imitate it at all. It doesn't stop me from trying every time I grab a beer, and I grab a lot of beers. Um, so the, that scene happens. They're having some beer. Uh, Kaiman, or excuse me, Wallace. Finally does get reunited with his actual car. Uh, hits. We find out that he's the one who hit John. That's, again, part of the magic of this universe, you know, whether it's the train or what have you. Just like the, the coincidence factor is extremely high, but that's just kind of – that's just what this show does. I'm fine with it. In fact, I find it kind of delightful now mm-hmm. when you're like, oh, shit, that was Wallace who hit him? Um, I think we had to I adjust wrote, to it, though, right? A little bit. Like, I yes. think that as the season progressed, you're like, oh, okay, this, I've said this before, but, oh, wow, things are really coincidental on the magic train. And then, and now we're like, oh, yeah, we're kind of living in a more magical universe now. 
I would say I think that the the uh, Stephen Conrad and the team do a good job of kind of because again I'm a highly skeptical person about any kind of magical realism or stuff that isn't just doesn't feel strictly factual to me but they've warmed me up to it you know it was like episode one wasn't this crazy it's just kind of like been happening slowly and I'm invested in the characters and they brought me along on it so it's kind of working for me um so uh Tom and Wallace have that chat at the at the hospital Tom signs his real name which starts a whole other chain of events um, which ends up in a get's hand. She shows up right after. And all of this happens before the credits, and now we're into the credits, um, which is interesting, the transition between very ominous dark music, not a, not a song, but just kind of soundtrack music of Tom standing there. I guess that maybe the representation is Tom's goose is cooked and he doesn't even know it, or maybe he's realizing that he's made a mistake, but it's just this very, like, dark like actually dark shot of tom looking kind of in i don't know what something and then this dark music and then right in the old beastie boys with sure shot i you know i didn't even i didn't uh pick up on the on that musical cue as much as you did you know i'm i'm it was foreboding i'm sort of scrubbing through this um as we speak, and I forget, we come back from the credits, and the first thing we see is our French investigator. Yeah. Um, just Guy. What's his name? His name is Guy Paul Pouillon. Guy, and he's just out in the alleyway um, practicing pulling a gun on somebody. We never get a payoff on that in this episode. I don't even know what timeline that's from. I mean, yeah, are we assuming point. that that's – because last I noticed, uh, didn't he get shot on the tube – he did. Or whatever they call it in Paris. Like, so I don't know if this was supposed to be after that or if this was him just practicing at some other point in time. It's kind of a weird scene. I mean, you know more about the show than I do. Maybe it'll come back around. But it was just kind of a funny thing that was just kind of happening there. I would like to apologize. I referred to him as a uh, French officer. I believe he is a um, from Luxembourg. Luxembourgian investigator. I'll go with that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so... Yeah, Guy's practicing his badassery in the alley, and uh, Mina uh, wants John to sing a. This is again how all the like. This is where I start to really be like impressed with the show because I forgot that Aget has that uh, Timon and Saperstein CD. Mm-hmm. So it's like it's kind of it sort of makes sense that you know Mina would have that would be a song or a songs from that CD would be ones that Mina is familiar with as a kid. So she wants John to come in and. And singing her a song, there's that very intense conversation between Alice and John about what about the fact that John is basically incapable of lying to Mina. So Alice is going to hear stuff. If Mina asks him a question, he's going to answer it honestly. And it sort of seems like um, he's kind of using this as a way to communicate with his wife, right? Like Because yep. he could just be honest with her. He could say it straightforward. Also... He said that he would never hurt Mina. That doesn't mean always telling the unvarnished truth, especially when you're dealing with kids, right? Sometimes the best way to uh, not hurt a child is to avoid certain realities of adulthood, especially when it involves climbing electric fences. So I think John, and don't, of course, John is, as they say, loaded. Uh, this is his sort of way of saying, you know, if you want to know what I'm doing, listen by the door because I will be telling Mina. I- I'd also like to just follow up and say this is the first episode where I actually like Mina or enjoy Mina. I never have an really? issue with her. I never think I never thought ill of her. She, though, was always a 
well. She was an innocent, uh, so you you feel like you need to protect her as the viewer. You, you understand those urges. Uh, but she's mostly been kind of a MacGuffin, if that's the right term, or um, just kind of a, a pawn, maybe. A cipher. Uh, yes, and in this one, you actually, you know, that's a very charming conversation. I think the, the actress has chops, and I was um, I was really into that scene between her and John. Yeah, they get into a whole thing um, about Chip the Cup from Beauty and the Beast, which is a character in the Disney universe that I am well familiar with because my daughter grew up exactly in the era of Beauty and the Beast. So good. I have and a Chip, question. Chip is a Chip is adorable. Chip has a chip. Chip talks like Chip's has that like kind of sibilance or whatever you'd call it, where Chip's s's get a little interesting because of the chip in his teeth, basically, of the cup. Chip is an adorable character. Well, here's my question for you. So uh, I did see that movie. I believe I saw that movie as a like a tween in the theater, if I recall. Um, but I don't remember that much about it. And so I'm learning from Mina about Chip the Cup here. And she says that he was a boy and then he became a cup and then he got chipped. And that's why his name is Chip. My question is, does that mean he had a different name when he was a boy I mean, probably because – well, let me think about the other characters really quick because, well, Lumiere is the candelabra. So I doubt his name was Lumiere before he got turned into a candle, played, of course, famously by Jerry Orbach of Law & Order fame and originally the Broadway cast of The Fantastics. So Orbach fact for you there. Mm. Um, So, yeah, so presumably Chip – uh yeah, Chip was not named Chip in in real life. I don't okay, think any of them were, uh, were. So so yeah, they talk about that, and of course that's a big stand-in for John as a character, and like, you know, sort of at what at what point is a person sort of irretrievably broken? I guess, or when is when is when when do we have a situation where it's a good person who's just been put through a lot, and and can you put can you put that person back together? It still kind of remains to be seen. Um. And John sings her this song uh, uh, about um, basically Chip the Cup, and uh, what's the, what the, the name of the song is? You can't uh, keep a good, good man cup. down. A I good think. cup down. You can't I keep think. a good cup down. I think so. And um, you know, again, it really it sets up this thing as he's describing to. Oh well, this is a really interesting concept to me. Every about once every three or four episodes. This show trots out a concept that I know will stay with me for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. For some reason, the Van Tazner Danger Meridian mm-hmm. is one of them, although let's hope I never have to try to do the calculation because it's not a real thing. But halfway in one more step, mm-hmm. that's an intense concept. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, 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 I get it, and it makes a lot of sense. And I think that, I mean, on a much less um, fraught scenario, Anytime you've tried to exercise, you sometimes yes. have you you do mental Speak exercises. Speak for yourself; like it's that, very right? fraught for me. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, not quite climbing electric fences to go um, assassinate a world leader. But um, yeah, you know, it's it's like you just. I told you the other day that there are these exercises I do at the gym, and I hate them, and they hurt. And um, they when involve I'm, an electric fence. When I'm done with them, I lay back and I just think that sucked, but that is the hardest thing I'll probably have to do today. Because again, I lived kind mm-hmm. of a charmed life, uh, and yeah, halfway and one more step definitely is something that sticks with me too. I take the dog on this jog where I live that's off leash. It's in the woods, and she's allowed to not be on a leash, which is a big deal for her. 
and it's a loop of a few miles. And sometimes I'll, if I'm feeling spry after I do it once, I'll do it again. And I'll tell myself, just get to halfway and you can walk the rest of the way if you want to. I usually don't, but there is a point. I have to trick myself into doing the second loop. And and also, there is a point where I am now further, I'm closer to the end than I am if I were to turn mm-hmm. around and go back. I am, as you might say, halfway and one more step. Mm-hmm. So, and I mean, yeah, you're talking. We're talking about it with exercising, but it applies to about a million things that you maybe don't want to do or are dreading. There is that that concept is a really interesting one to me. Let me bring up something that is so not fun, and like I said, incredibly nitpicky and possibly wrong. And I, I wonder if Conrad mm-hmm. actually has an answer to this. Maybe we'll find out. But my understanding of how electricity works, which is very limited, my knowledge is very limited. But I thought that you have to be kind of grounded in order for that electricity to flow through you and hurt you because you've probably heard about this too we both you know worked in radio traditional radio in our in our younger days and you would hear about the am radio towers which actually had uh, rf going through them yet sometimes those old school radio engineers had to climb them and so what they had to do is they'd have to run up to it and then jump onto it as long as they jumped onto it they could then climb up it as long as no part of them was also touching the ground while they're touching the um you know electrified rf tower uh wouldn't that apply here God, I am just I would be guessing in such a such a rank way as far as my lack of knowledge about it that I mean I don't even fully understand is it when my dad used to my dad's a sign painter and before technology they would do something called pouncing mm. and that was way less martial arts related than you might think mm. it would be you would basically trace something so there would be a logo that he was going to ultimately try to put on a sign but the first thing would be you trace it with tracing paper, and then you go over the tracing paper with this thing called a pouncer, which was a little electric gun that would shoot a spark through the paper and onto a piece of metal behind oh. the thing. So what you would eventually create would be a another tracing that its characteristic was that it was a bunch of little tiny holes you couldn't see. Then you would take that thing that was pounced, you would put it on the surface you were going to do it, and you would pat it down with chalk with black chalk or or black graphite or something and then pull the pounced paper off and you would now have a perfect representation of whatever you were trying to put on the thing that's fascinating i know it was a it was a really before technology that was a very weird job trying to do this stuff that my dad would do but anyway he got shocked once i remember running the pouncer but what i've never understood is is it do you get shocked when you complete the circuit or when you stop the circuit i would imagine it's when you complete the circuit yeah, right that's, that's why the... rubber shoes help because if you yeah. stop the circuit i guess it just it just tries to go into you and then it realizes it can't go anywhere i'm t- i'm now anthropomorphizing electricity like it's got will and and hopes and dreams but it's if you become part of the circuit, that's when things are bad, right? I want you to know that I'm totally picturing that as like an old school 1980s educational cartoon with a little like electric bolt running yeah. around and getting and zapping things mm-hmm. and then uh, stopping yeah. the zapping when it uh, comes across a rubber tennis shoe. Um, but yeah, anyway, I don't have answers. I could have looked that up. I'm also not in this uh, podcast game to get totally yeah. hung up on those things. I just wanted to raise it because uh, just with my limited knowledge of how people used to climb 
prime AM broadcast hours. I was watching mm-hmm. that scene thinking, maybe you just get up on it and it's not so bad. But that is definitely not the takeaway that we're supposed to take away because at the end when we see John has gone through all five fences and we see his face, uh, I think we're just supposed to imagine the just in, uh, intense amount of pain he is in. I was interested, though, to see how they depict it because you don't ever actually, unless I missed it, you never actually see the scene where he, like, jumps onto a fence and goes, ouch. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, that would be bad acting if he did that. Um, that's probably why I was not cast in the Owie! role of John Tavner. Yikes. <laughs> that would be my catchphrase. You'd be like Chester every Cheetah. Time, <laughs> every, every time I got hurt. Someone punched me. Yikes. <laughs> um, but uh, like you never because I was uh, like f- going back to my days as a little kid. It's less so now. I'm a grown ass man. I'm on definitely I'm <laughs> I'm halfway and five steps towards the grave. Believe me. But um, but like it, when I was a little kid, I hated scenes in movies where people were physically in pain. Mm-hmm. And I've never like I've never loved it. Although, again, I understand at this point in my life, it's acting. So I'm not that stressed out, but for some reason, this was a very, I overused this comparison, but this was a very uh, sort of Chekhovian, you know, this, this, this gun, this electric fence was introduced in the first act. And it was just like, I was just like, oh, it's going to suck when I see him all battered and blind jump onto the fence and go, yikes. <laughs> uh, so we never quite see that. They sort of like, will cut to somebody who's like worried about John, right? That seems to be the device. As he goes through the levels, more or less. And the sound. I think every time he jumps on a new fence, I think if you listen closely, you can hear an electric kind of buzz sizzle sound. Did you notice that at all? I didn't notice that. Um, I might just have a bad TV. (laughs) Also, did you notice that smoke was literally coming out of your TV when you were watching this episode? Oh no. no, that's a bad TV. Oh you gotta, shit! But wait, were you wearing your were you wearing your like headphones when you watched this? No, but I was watching on a television, and I think you watch yes. on your laptop, right? So it might have been a laptop speaker. No, thing. I oh. because this is the most interesting place to take this conversation <laughs> because today we're recording this. I mean, and, and in the real timeline of the world that we live in, it's absolutely nuts right now. With all this, everybody's hunkering down because of this virus. Everything is. Everything is topsy-turvy and yet very static. It's both very chaotic. Have you thought about that? Maybe we'll talk about that on the real show. TBTL on Monday. This is the most chaotic and yet sludge-like staticky moment, right, of life. We are all totally freaked out, and we're also being told to just stay right where we are yeah. and watch Catfish on MTV. But anyway, because I'm watching, because I was watching the show right before we recorded this, it's much more efficient for me to watch the show on my television while taking notes on my laptop. Because if I watch it on my laptop, I have to... I still pause it most of the time when it's on the TV, but if it's on the laptop, I cannot, by definition, watch it and take copious notes yeah. because then I'm toggling between screens. So in this case, I did watch it on television. There wasn't any smoke. I bet you you're right about the zapping sound effect. I just missed it, I think, because I was... I don't know. Just not listening closely enough for that. Do you just want to take a, a, a let's let's see if I'm right about this. You are right. Like it's very intercut with other scenes, so I need to like be pretty precise here. But let's see if there's any truth to what I'm saying. Um, let's see here. So I think it's going to be right around here. You have to be one. It's approaching the fence. You have to be one. 
Oh yeah, it was very Definitely subtle, very it. subtle, but it was in there. No, but it's bit. there. Yeah, yeah. Ugh, man. So I, I was like, honestly, I was kind of, I was, uh, I appreciated, I appreciated not just having it be kind of, you know, Saw Four, mm-hmm. um, Jigsaw's Revenge, where you just see John getting sizzled at each and every uh, turn. But, um, but let's see. I don't know. Was that me jumping ahead a little bit? Yeah, because there's a lot of conversation well it's sort of woven into all of this i guess um well let me jump back to one thing really quick which is a kind of larger concept which i mean john sings about it as he's on his way to the compound but how he's pulling a a real kind of dick move like he's tied charlie the probably other than uh alice probably the only thing in the world he and and rick of course excuse me edward aka cool rick like the thing he probably loves in the most in the world would be made. I mean, Charlie's on the list. Let's say that Charlie has made the short list of things that matter to John, and he tied him to a goddamn train tracks like a, like a, snively whiplash from a, nineteen o two movie. Again, I mean, that's dark. This is a little nitpicky. I don't think he ties him because I think it's somebody else, isn't it? Doesn't he? Um, deploy birdbath because we see a quick scene of birdbath and i think we see him tell that but he doesn't tie him i think i'm gonna actually play this i think birdbath just walks him out to the tracks and then says stay stay nice yeah okay so i mean not i mean listen it's still it's still it's no 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 no, no, it's very different no 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 that's actually really worth noting though because i was like john bro like i know you like i know that you are you you Doing what you got to do, but man, does Charlie got to die over it? Um, I'm glad to to be reminded that it's not really what happened. It was, I guess, more of a trick than anything. Um, assuming that Charlie would, if it were, if he were in danger, he would know to step aside from the train. But um, so he's, he's he's tricking Glenn Purdue into running back to the to the train, and then also, Can I drill I mean, down honestly, on, I'm sorry, Luke, to interrupt. I want to drill down on one other quick thing here because I was I actually rewound this while I was watching it. I'm not 100% sure that they did leave the dog in the middle of the actual train tracks. I think that we see the dog in between two sets of train tracks. Mm -hmm. I think that there was some truth in we left your dog near the train tracks, but I don't think that they actually put the dog in harm's way. Could be wrong. Probably not important, but I'm like staring at the still screen right now, and it's one thing. It's kind kind of of important because when I saw that and I forgot uh, about what you had just reminded me of, my thought was, John is really losing his humanity here. Not that I think he wants Charlie to be dead, but in my reading of things, he was like, yeah, if Charlie's got to go, Charlie's got to go. If I need this as a leverage point over Glenn Perdue, um, it's different if it's a calculated thing where he sent Birdbath to do it and Birdbath's he kind of knows Birdbath is not going to literally tie him to the tracks. I mean, the thing, though, that he does have Edward do straight out of the training manual is whomp. Sophie with the bicycle and it's like that's right I mean that's a big that's a really rough one because like I mean it's it's like he's putting his evil inside of Edward at this point it's like mm-hmm. it's just that's really really I don't I don't have anything else elegant or interesting to say about it other than that's really rough yeah I think of Sophie as being an innocent not just because we learned her backstory and now we're like sort of especially invested in her as a character, but just because she is uh, – she's just doing her job. She's not even a get. A get is complicated as a character. Sophie to me is not. Sophie is purely out to try to do good or do justice. Mm-hmm. And I mean I feel like can't you 
is there a is there another way to waylay her without whacking her with a bicycle? Yeah, but I guess we've also seen Nan suffer the physical effects yeah. of trying to stop him. So I don't know why I'm less worried about Nan. I guess I'm just more inured to it because that's happened to her character a few episodes ago. Well, also, I think it's the way it's portrayed in, in the situation. Like the Nan scene is like Nan is an officer of the law who's getting injured during what we would like call an action scene. Right. They're kind of it's a slow chase, but they're chasing each other around silently in the store. And it's kind of in the in the midst of action the way you know and the and the showmakers do a good job of obscuring it so it's not too um graphic but i think the thing about sophie is she appears to be minding her own business and then is just blindsided by a bicycle and there's something that seems especially um especially cruel about that she's not like per- she's not pursuing edward right and then edward gets the better right. of her which is what happens in the store and yeah it's like it also bums me out because like Look, honestly, I know I said last week, Edward, it is it's it's endearing to a degree that he's ready to ride or die with John uh, through whatever danger this may present. And as I think I said last week during last week's show, some of that may be attributable to Edward being such a moron. He doesn't understand really how dangerous it is. He's just like cool Rick reporting for duty or something. (laughs) But the idea that now he's whacking a law enforcement person uh, with a, you know, bicycle, it just feels like. He's losing his humanity as well. Um, I'm worried that they're going to take away violence. his. What if they take away his attaché badge? Like, think about that. <laughs> then he's got nothing to lose. Then watch out. Yeah, we've come a long. Um, I, 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 sorry to interrupt. I keep interrupting, but I just didn't want you to move on. But it is. It's like when you think about that, it goes back to what I was saying at the beginning of this episode. Just like we just feel so far away from these things that seemed innocent and funny at the beginning of yep. the series, right? So the conversation between John's mom and Tom is interesting about the smoke and the weed. And there's that very in the sort of classic sense of patriot in this classic way that they do it on the show. That's the that's the lexicon of talking about their son and marijuana is smoking the weed. He's smoking the weed again. When did you know he was smoking the weed? How do you know he's smoking the weed? There's one point finally at the end where Tom's like "Ah, smoking the. And then he changes, like he just says something else. I was like, almost like, how many times are they going to literally say those words? What do you think that's a stand-in for? Is that because they don't know how to talk about his real danger? What is, I mean, are they literally that concerned about him being on marijuana? Or what does that signify in the show, do you think? I think it signifies irony. Uh, I isolated this tape before. It's a little long. It's almost a minute. But do you mind if I play it and then I'll answer your question? Nope. Okay, let's take a listen to this. So this is uh, Bernice and Tom. Have a puff of my weed over here. While <laughs> yeah, take your time. I'm going to hear the sound effects from hits from a bong as I play this yeah. tape. Probably here we go. I want to tell you something concerning John. He's smoking on the weed again. I know. You know. You know he was smoking on it again? Yeah. He was smoking on it today. How many times can we talk to him about it, you know? Yeah. What are we going to do? We can't live his life for him, right? Ultimately, he has to make his own choices. I'm going to stop it there because that's what I think the key is, how ironic it is that Tom is saying we can't make John's choices for him. He's got to live his own life, which this whole show seems to be the opposite of that. Tom totally controlling John's life. And by the way, 
Uh, John's mom, if she were a stock, she would be plummeting right now, in my opinion, because she's much more complicit in this than I initially thought. As ev- I would say, as evidenced by her conversation with Alice, um, where she literally says uh, about Tom that uh, something to the effect of, he's a uh, bad father-in-law, but a good man. Mm. Like, uh, I mean, to me, those are inextricably linked. Being a good man means that he would be a good father to John, and then by extension, presumably a good father-in-law to Alice. Like, And it just, at this point, it seems like something has changed in John's mom's character, where it's like she's sort of like Team, team Tavner. Team, we got to get this done. Alice, you should get out of here. Let's get this kid reunited. Let's let's uh, you know let John do his thing. Let's let Tom do his thing. Like it feels to me like she's ultimately sort of siding with business as usual. Was that the sense you got? Uh, no, it isn't. And I think that this is. Um, well, you're wrong. You and I are. How's thinking- that feel? <laughs> you and I are going to keep having this fight uh, until the end of the uh, until the end of the series. Um, and I think maybe that's good, and I think maybe that's fine, but I am still very much attracted to what we both said was the thesis of the show or a, a primary um, element of the show early on, which is nobody's all good and nobody's all bad. People are complicated. I still think that Tom Tavner is a good man who doesn't always do good things and sometimes misses the mark as far as uh, as far as being aware of what he's putting people through. I think this episode, what we end up seeing him doing in, in, in calling off the hit later, is he's still struggling with things and he's still evolving as a human being. I don't think anybody in this show is beyond the comment that you may be bad in some respects but good in other respects. That's what I love about this show. And I don't think that Tom is pure evil. I don't think Tom is pure evil. But I think that he's... The most responsible person for all of this mayhem that's happened in all of these lives, lives that are lost, lives that are ruined, lives that will never be the same. I I put it on Tom more than anyone else. Mm-hmm, that's and fair. maybe I maybe that's absolving John of you know, John's a grown ass man and maybe he's also responsible for his actions to some degree as far as deciding what he will and won't do, but so that's I don't think that Tom is pure evil either. But I, I guess I will say that, like, I, his, you know, his, John's mom comes in as kind of, to me, the voice of reason. She's sort of the, you know, why are all these people here? Who are these people? Let your son go get his goddamn fingers reattached. You know, she just seems like that's her kind of energy at the beginning. And now her energy feels to me a little bit more like, let's, you know, let these guys do what they got to do. That was just the vibe I was getting more in this episode than in the previous episodes from mm-hmm. her. Yeah, I think, though, her stock rose with me this episode because I liked her before. But I think that she's even more just like TC being all over the place. Um, I like the the fact that she can see the big picture and is uh, knows how to navigate this from all sides and is courage and uh, pardon me and is encouraging Alice to um to get out of town, I think she she knows that Alice she she definitely knows that Alice in some way is getting closer to putting Tom in harm's way from Bernice's perspective. Whether or not she's sussed out the details of exactly what's going on, you get the impression in that conversation in Mina's room, or is it Mina? I think it might it's be Mina. Mina. It is which Mina. Which is okay. why why I intentionally misspelled it 
and then later oh, outed okay. myself on Twitter while talking to one Stephen Conrad. Okay, good. So it is. So it is Mina. Um, I think who's your favorite Seahawks reporter slash host at the ESPN level? Mina Kimes. Oh, I thought you were going to say her name's Graz. I was like, what? Um, <laughs> <laughs> well uh, anyway, um, we'll. I was going to say one person will get that joke, but I think the one person who'll get that joke is doing this podcast with me right now. But anyway, uh, uh, yeah, so I actually think that she is uh, seeing the complicated nature of what's going on when she approaches Alice in Mina's room. She realizes that she says, why is this girl still here? You're being used, Alice. You think you're trying to do the right thing, but this investigator knows what she's doing, and she's putting her own child here as a way of keeping you around. I am a mom. Um, this is why I'm around too. I know how this works, and I can sort of see through it. I I I really love the Bernice character, maybe more than ever. Well, I'll tell you, she spits some real knowledge at Aget when they finally meet. Oof. When she's basically like, "You and Tom are pretty similar. You used your children as pawns, uh-huh. and you and Tom have never had to put your ass on the line. Uh-huh. Uh huh. So you probably don't understand what it's like. But guess who has put their ass on the line? John, which is why you cannot." game theory out what he's going to do uh and this could get really really bad for you or really bad for mina so that was that's an intense scene yeah it's almost um gangstery right i don't think that you know the very last thing you said i don't know if i 100 percent agree with that she was in any way indicating that mina would be harmed except for maybe by potentially losing a mother but it really felt like i'm just saying you cannot uh, pay us protection money, but people have accidents all the time. That's not a good imitation, what I just did. I'm trying to place that. But I'm I, trying to I place don't, the I don't. region of the world that's from. I, I don't know. I have a whole. Utica? <laughs> definitely more upstate, of a Utica thing? It's definitely upstate New York. Um, yeah, so anyway, but you know what I'm saying? Like, that scene is yeah. just so right, right, tough. So you, and, and also, right, like, so you, it's kind of a callback, too. She's like, okay, so you – I felt like it was a little bit of a callback to the Rochambeau thing. She's like, okay, you can call mm-hmm. – you can predict John up to a point, but, um, you know, don't get, mm-hmm. don't get it twisted. But then, so my question then becomes – I don't think – I'm not saying you're wrong, but so that leads to – I guess get allowing for Mina to be reunited with her aunt. Um, does that mean Aget is off the case? Because if the threat was to Aget, ooh, look at that. We've got like a, one quarter of a rhyme. One I know, I'm, I'm still sniffing out uh, show titles, so I'll write that one down. As yeah. The threat is to Aget. If the threat, not that, not that Bernice is threatening Aget, but Bernice is a letting Aget know about the danger she or maybe Mina is in, then by that logic, Amina and Aget should be getting out of the game, right? Or is it just that Aget wants to at least make sure that Mina is protected? Um, and she'll, I mean, I, I can't imagine the end of this show doesn't involve Aget. That would make no sense. So she's I, she's been warned. She's trying to maybe provide some safety for her daughter, but I assume she's still, you know, going to be pushing forward and i will just throw this out there does that also relate to the fact that john gets the money at the very end in the mail Ugh. presumably from a get that i as i can i mean i was let's just before we jump to that though because that is like the very end almost the very end uh and i will give this show credit for once again completely blindsiding me with that not what i expected um this show does something kind of incredible on a semi-regular basis for me which is like 
what I had to start, what I really grappled with watching this episode was, do I even want John to succeed? I'm not talking about for his own personal safety. It has me wondering, why is America the only country that is, quote unquote, moral enough to have the bomb? Why can't Iran have a bomb? They're a country. They're, you know, um, sovereign. Like, it's almost like, I mean, this is all through the lens of Wallace Kandahar, who I find to be a very likable character. He's going after what he's going after. And... Of course, he ends up losing his life, and that was that, you know, him getting that gun was why he ended up dying, because if he doesn't have the gun pointed at John, he doesn't get shot, right, presumably? Mm -hmm. But what this show had me really grappling with is this uh, America first idea, this idea that we're the good guys and they're the bad guys, and the way... What we're rooting for is the good guys to win and the bad guys to be defeated. There's a different version of this show in Iran. I don't speak Farsi, but it's like, you know, the the Iranian version of Patriot where we're rooting for Wallace Kandahar because in Iran, you're like, bro, we need to be armed to protect ourselves against the threat that is Israel and the United States and whomever else. You know what I mean? Like I had this moment of thinking like, is, are we even, is it even a given that John and Tom are on the the right team? You know, I was looking at when the, the show was made and when it came out and it was, the first season did come out before the Trump era, which means it was made, you know, before that. Um, And, you know, everything you just said, like, well, why shouldn't Iran have the bomb? I think there are some – it seems like some pretty easy answers to that. But it does underscore how we as Americans are influenced by what's going on in our, our, the White House right now, which is a weird place to take this particular podcast. But I would have said, well, because Iran is an irrational actor. Uh, and yeah. now yeah, right? we – now the United States, based on who is in charge of the United States – the U.S. is a completely irrational actor, almost more irrational by definition, because it's really hard to tell what the motives of our president is. And so it seems like a very dangerous situation for uh, that individual to be in charge of the bomb as well. Um, so anyway, but I mean, that's what you, you would say is like, well, yeah, we do believe in certain amounts of stability and the international unions um, and alliances that have been made and, and the sure. reasons why we don't trust NATO and the like. Exactly. And why we don't trust countries like Iran um, or North Korea. But you are right in, in the era we live in now where it's really hard to feel like America is the good guy. I understand your I understand where you're coming from. Yeah, I hadn't even thought of that. But like. When this show came out, which was when again? Uh, like was Obama I'm looking at it president? now. It says the original. Was it that long ago. It looks like the original release was November fifth, twenty fifteen, and I don't know how Amazon yeah. distributed it. If they if they kind of sprinkled them or if it was a big season dump. But but yeah, I'm, and this is just my, I'm not trying to bring politics even further into this, but it's like if this if Barack Obama's president, when I'm watching this show for the first time, I'm wholeheartedly rooting for the U.S. to you know foil this plot to get the to get the the bomb if as it were and right now i have a totally different read i'm kind of like man ain't nobody blameless in this bullshit uh, you yeah, yeah you know what i just thought of too is we actually there isn't a lot of real world stuff that we see in the show but we do oh we do see obama we literally on TV, see obama on tv in that and diner and i think that's smart because i mean people like us who are attracted to the show i think that um seeing obama folks like you and i who enjoy the show and also uh, enjoyed uh, the obama presidency 
just seeing I trusted him so much. I know that his reputation yeah. wasn't spotless when it came to the war arena and the drone strikes, but like I just trusted him as a commander in chief. And if decisions had to be made that m- maybe would see that I would question more under a different administration, I, I chalked it up to believing that President Obama was a really good man with really good intentions who <laughs> maybe like Tom Tavner doesn't always get it right. Um, yeah. But uh, I wonder if that was uh, a specific sort of I wonder if using Obama footage like that in a show that is has so much sort of fantasy in it, using that bit of verite, I wonder if that was a way of also kind of making a, a reminder that w- Tom is on the side of Obama and Obama's America. Interesting. Yeah, because it would be easy to overuse that device. And in fact, I could see a show falling into the trap of like, getting just in love with the idea of intercutting like wolf blitzer saying this yeah. that happens i feel like it's it's kind of cheap a little bit and a lot of movies and shows do it mm-hmm. where they try to up the i'll use this word for the second time the verisimilitude of what they're doing by forcing jimmy fallon to do a pretend interview with a fictional character mm-hmm. because they feel like that builds the reality of the universe and particularly a show like this i feel like it would have been so easy to just make it this like extremely 2015 moment but one of the beautiful things about this show is it's like even the locations they shoot it in, in Luxembourg and in Paris, but particularly in Luxembourg, it feels like it's like 1700. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's sort of out of time. It's almost ahistoric mm-hmm. um, in a way. And uh, I like that a lot. It makes the show so much more interesting to watch a few years later. I like to think about that. That's how our other podcast, TBTL, is. It is totally irrelevant in the time that we're making it, and years later, it's equally irrelevant. So <laughs> enjoy right. it for years, people. That's right. That's right. Until a virus spreads across the globe, and we have to talk about never reality. Happen. Yeah, that would. I can't imagine that happening. Um, so I actually, I'll be honest with you. When I was confused as to what was happening when Tom called the mission off, I wasn't confused about what he was doing, but by John not answering the phone. Mm-hmm. And then by John turning and killing Wallace Kandahar, I, for a moment, thought that the mission continued, by the way, because I'm an idiot. Um, I didn't realize that was just him trying to leave, right? I mean, that's what happens. He knows that call on that BlackBerry means the mission's off. You're not trying to kill this guy. That's a given. And then he's just trying to get out of there. And unfortunately, because they have armed Wallace... Now Wallace dies. Mm-hmm. And what a tragedy. And is that is that John... I'm sorry, is that Tom's fault, you know? And that's, I'm not sure how we're supposed to feel or if we're supposed to feel anything specific. When Tom does place that phone call and calls it off, you're so frustrated. You, you're, Tom, you're calling it off now? After He went through five fucking electrified fences. He beat a dog. He gave a dog a minor limb to chew on yeah. and then beat him with the other. I'm like, you know what I mean? It's like, what... This is like this is halfway and a step already. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so it's very in a certain way, and I think this is on purpose. That that scene when he gets the call, it is both incredibly relieving and incredibly frustrating at the same time. Because m- fuck you, Tom. I was going to say, you know, I'm always in the oh. one defending him, but oh, I, I should take a photo of this. Look who's over on my side of the uh, <laughs> I was going to tell you, like, I'm literally looking at my notes from yesterday here. I scratched them out on a piece of paper this time. I wrote, Tom, quote, 
ultimately he can make his own choices. Fuck you, Tom. <laughs> so I'm really, I'm not, you know, we totally call this episode for... <laughs> Fuck You, Tom. They'll, and you know what? The listeners will assume that was me saying yes, that. Um, but anyway, uh, so, yeah, it's one of those things where you're so glad that – because if John opens that door and goes through with the mission, we see that he's going to die by five Uzis. Like, this will be the end of yeah. John. So we're happy so it's that not John for is alive. But we also lose one of the good characters of the show. When I say good, I don't just mean entertainment value. I mean one of the, the people – you know, again, with all this moral relativism that you and I are talking about on a global scale, uh, the, the Kandahar dad is – a good man he's a good father he's trying to do the right thing and now he's got to die because tom uh decides to pull the trigger well to the opposite of pulling the trigger to to pull out uh too too late um and it's just another trap you know and that's the type of thing that's going to drive let's see here actually you know what i don't think john realizes who he killed right so i don't know if john's going to feel a lot of guilt over that it was just another armed guy in this palace that he had to get out of but um, I don't know. It's it's kind of a tragedy. Also, does John John doesn't have major to, tragedy. He doesn't have to climb over those fences again, does he? Can he just walk out? <laughs> I assume so. I mean, it's so darkly funny the idea that he'd have to like, yowie, yikes! Ooh, that's a spicy fence. These are all things he would say as he encountered each fence on the way out. Oh, that burns going out. Oh, my um, God. You should have directed this episode. I, you know what? I was in consideration, uh, and at the last minute, they decided to go with Stephen Conrad. Who, huh. Interesting I guess, choice. whatever, micromanager. He has to yeah. fucking put his fingerprints all over every element of this show. Um, but I don't think, I hope to God, which, well, that raises another question, though, which is, how did he leave? I mean, I guess it's just like, well, he killed some people when he got in there. So I guess, you know, there's probably some fortified non-electric door gate that he just opens from the inside and leaves. Maybe it was being guarded by someone that he had already killed. Yeah, because um, other because people right. who are on the inside have to be able to come and go. So I'm assuming right. that. Yeah. But that was apparently probably impenetrable through the traditional. Also, you mentioned, so I don't know why this is like a small thing. I may have missed it, too, because I was kind of my eyes were going between the screen and then my laptop with the notes. But one thing he mentioned that just, like, troubled me was the idea that he knew he was going to vomit after the fences. He says something like, i got to throw up and then fight the dog. Oh, yeah. Like, do, do we see that happen? I don't remember. I don't think we see that happen, but it's just, like, it reminds me of the I'm going to be passed out for 17 minutes. Yeah, it's right. like throwing up is such an unpleasant experience to go into a, a, a thing knowing that the outcome is going to be you have to vomit. Like, your body is just involuntarily going to do this. It just... It adds to the darkness of the whole thing for me as the viewer. Speaking of the darkness, I, hmm. Luke, you and I have been friends for a long time. Your empathy towards animals has really um, increased, especially not that you were ever yes. cruel towards animals. But I know that you really I've been on road trips with you where you are on the verge of <laughs> a lot of emotion seeing roadkill at the yeah. side of the road. And I'm not saying that to tease yes. you. You're very empathetic right. about this, you know. Ever since the last episode where we see him at Quantico reading about how to fight a dog and then remembering, oh, yeah, he's going to fight a dog in this, I have been really – I've wanted to protect you from that scene. When I was watching this yesterday, yeah. I was like, I want, is there a way I can make a cut of this that I can send mm -hmm. to Luke and just say, this is that the was part where he fights that, a dog? Right? <laughs> What's that? And I think 
previous episodes, I think you said something like there's a scene that's going to be hard for you to see. Or Did something. I say that? It sounds about right. Yeah, because I remembered I, I thought maybe you might have thought you were off the hook when, you know, in that instructions on how to fight a dog. I believe the quote that the unseen instructor says is something like it's like fighting a 80 pound weird little guy. And then later yep. on in last episode, of course, he's fighting the cop from Milwaukee. who's you know, probably weighs 100 pounds um, or maybe exactly 80. Uh, and so I was thinking, and of course you made that connection. I'm like, yeah, but he's really going to fight a dog too. And I was like, shit, right. how can I, how can I, how can I just tell Luke where to fast forward this? I'm, I feel very protective of you. Um, uh, you. 70 miles away watching it. At I know house. that you, if I were on a mission to watch, someone fight a dog, you would call it off before I got to that scene, and I appreciate I that. I think I'm more now, like what I was remi- <laughs> I'm like, What I, I was, was reminding myself when I was watching it was, that's not really happening. I literally had to tell myself mm-hmm. that, and then I was like, okay, this is acting. Um, but yeah, that's pretty brutal, what's going on there. Although, I, you know, it's a pretty brutal dog he's fighting. Something something about, if the, like if it was Charlie, forget oh it. I'm not even watching the last episode. Right. If they showed Charlie getting hit by a train, please tell me Charlie doesn't die in the last episode. Um, that's, you know, you've lost me as a viewer, but uh, mm-hmm. this is, you know, a military-style dog that's, you know, uh, sort of, uh, this is the grim reality of, of, of man versus beast, I guess. But, um, yeah, no, that was that was pretty rough. Um, and you're, I don't even think I, I think I kind of understood it, but I'm glad to get clarification from you that those, were they Dutch boys or were they the other guys? I always get them. Is the action boys or the outer ring and then the inner okay. ring, the ones closest the are the Dutch boys, yeah. If only the Dutch boys had some kind of very, very distinct haircut to indicate for me <laughs> yeah, right. which ones were which. Did but, you notice no. that they went to protect Another oversight their, by Conrad. <laughs> with their head. I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, uh, Cantor, Wally is, Cantor Wally is sitting behind his desk, and then they realize there's a breach, yes. and they go to protect, protect him. And the first thing they do is they throw their heads in front of his chest. Like, wow. Yeah. They're like, there's something kind of, the, I mean, there's something theatrical almost campish about these guys because of the outfits and because of their behaviors. Like it's almost like something out of Hudson Hawk, the movie with mm-hmm. Bruce Willis um, that everybody panned, but I loved as a kid I re- and Sandra Bernhardt's in it. I remember there being some sort of campiness to the bad guys. It's almost the Dutch boys are almost a camp level mm-hmm. of, of a, of a security detail, but in a good way, in a way that I, I like it's a, again, that's almost like, this is close. We're going to get to comic relief in this episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What um, did you make of the scene? I don't, I apologize if you wanted to go somewhere. I was just going to jump ahead a little bit and ask you about a get approaching Nan. I was a little confused yeah. about that conversation. I mean, I think I know, well, I think I remember what it's, I think I remember kind of why it's there, but what do you make of it in the moment? It, well, it feels to me like it's a get trying to decide if she should keep going after John. Mm-hmm. And the person who has maybe the most analogous relationship with chasing John would be Nan. She suffered a worse physical consequence now. So that's just what I think. I mean, I think I assume that precedes the money being sent. That's a get. So may who knows? I mean, I just said it would be crazy if, if a get wasn't in this final episode. And again, you know this, what happens. So... Um, I, I don't know if what I'm saying is going to bear out or not, but I feel like that's a get asking Nan, would you would you keep chasing this man? I mean, you know, and Nan says, I was afraid of him. There's something about him. And then she says, well, would you would you keep chasing him? I'm not fit. Well, if you were fit and we don't get the answer, but then cut to the money eventually showing up. So that makes me think a get took it from Nan that John is just a, 
at this point, honestly, such a mercenary. I was about to say psychopath, but that's unfair to John. But I, I think that I think Aget has realized it's just like you win, dude, basically. It's also interesting to see that Nan is getting her um, eyesight back a little bit, and it's not yes. completely unlike John's eyesight at this point. Right. I noticed that, too. Um, yeah, so that was a kind of uh, – that was a, a weird – not a weird scene, but, you know, a, like you said, every single scene in this episode is very intense. It really is sort of – you know, the last episode was just so beautiful and – Everybody was in the sunshine, and they're buying an accordion kid back, and they're okay, that part wasn't great, but you know what I mean. They're just having a fun a fun day in Paris, and this is just it's like night falls, and man, do things change. This is a completely just opposite episode. Um, when that money shows up, and John opens it, and then he calls Leslie in the scene that the, the audio we started the show with. Again, I'm putting you in an impossible position because you understand what the implications are. But I will just tell you about my experience is I am completely befuddled at why John needs his teeth pulled out. I know that will be exposed or explained, but I really was like, shit, I got to watch this next episode. Mm -hmm. Like, I might watch it tonight, even though we're not going to do another episode of McMillan for another week, because I got to figure out what is going on with the teeth situation. Also, side note, writers... Do we have to beat John's physical body up more? I think yes. Some... I think the answer to that question is clearly yes. <laughs> You're I a hard say, yes? Well, I mean, not that I'm rooting for it, but I think that, and I and I do, as much as my uh, memory is, uh, you know, shot full of holes at this point in my life, um, I, do, I do know how, you know, that kind of plays into the plot line. Um, but yeah, I think that at this point, it is a real signal that there's a um, – I'm searching for a word here that that isn't coming to me, but that, like, John's body represents something here, and it just keeps on getting – I mean, it's literally getting torn apart. He's losing pieces of his body. Now, he did get his fingers back, so, you know – you know, don't cry you for win him. Some, you yeah. lose <laughs> like he's not a total victim here. But yeah, no, I mean he's been shot in the foot. His fingers have literally come off. He's been uh hit in the head. He can barely see, and now teeth are gonna be forcibly ripped from his head, supposedly. So Yeah, it's it's bleak because like, you know you know, the the mission was called off. He's now got the money, so it's kinda like it all worked. He he thought he had to just go kill Cantor or Wally because they didn't have the money. I'm you know I'm how am I losing the major thread of the show? Um, but it's like he's now got the money, which was kind of the objective the whole time, right? Well, the, but he still had to get the money into the hands of the other candidate, right? Wasn't that it? Oh, there's that. He but, has to still deliver okay, the point. money A to B to try to get right the structural dynamics of this money try to get the money to the person running against Cantor Wally because the idea is that they are less radical and they are more likely to um, take a path of, of peace or lack of nuclear proliferation I guess so but I guess my point is he's got the money this is the thing that they've all been looking for uh, this basically this whole show now he's got the money in hand he's in relative safety like he's not in the compound surrounded by Dutch boys and yet he says to Larry, uh, to uh, um, Leslie, the guy with the girl name, <laughs> he says, things are about to get fucked up. And you're like, what? You're, you're out, bro. Like, Mina's reunited with a get sister. It's like, you know, hit eject. But the like, money was never just even... to get it back. The whole thing was this was their money. They're back. They're back at square one now. 
they just got the money yeah. back. But the point wasn't just to get the money back and put it back into the, you know, uh, whatever CIA's coffers or the U.S. secret budget. The whole point was from episode one was to no, take no, it this to Vegas is our double money. It. <laughs> That's right, exactly. Oh, uh, no, to get the money into the hands. Which, by the way, I mean that is the other thing too. I mean, maybe we're just. Um, myopic ourselves because we're getting all this through the through the lens of the show but yeah i mean it seems like you've been through so much it's like haven't other people been working on other strategies now it just seems so innocent like let's just get some money to another candidate so they can run a better campaign really after everything i have gone through form a super pack just <laughs> right get it in there blind i mean yeah. you learn nothing from the u.s elections yeah. I mean, there's a lot of ways to skin that cat yeah I don't know um, how Citizens I know, United oh, affected the Iranian political system. <laughs> it was far-reaching. It was precedent-setting, <laughs> It really was. And we're only now beginning to understand the implications of that. Yeah. I wish that was fully a joke. It's kind of not. But, yeah, so um, I am uh, I'm intrigued. I am very intrigued about how this is all going to end and, and also, you know, wondering about the state of John's teeth by the end of it but I, or his mouth, I guess. But we'll find that out together. Um me and the couple of uh, listeners of the show who who don't know how this thing ends. So, anything else we need to throw in here? No, I mean, you know, I got a Citizens United joke out of this whole thing, which I know oh, we yeah? saw that coming. So maybe we, should, win. <laughs> maybe we should just end on a high note there. Which which uh, Supreme Court ruling uh, should we try to integrate into Brown v. Board of Education, Roe v. Wade? Um, what are some other biggies that we can try to get into the final episode of? Macmillan Men, uh, which, of course, is covering the... F- you know what? I'll tell you, and I'll, this will probably come up next week on the show. Like, I'm a little... I'm I'm a little wistful uh, mm. that the that we're at the end of this journey. I mean, anytime... What I... With my weird jobs, people ask me sometimes about, hey, do you like, you know, doing the work that you do? And I wonder even if, like, Stephen Conrad... At some point, this is me just talking directly to Stephen Conrad... Mm. I, and the other people who work on Patriot, for instance, I wonder if other people have had the same experience, which is you're doing something that is your dream job. For me, getting to watch a great show like Patriot and then discuss it with you, Andrew, that is a dream job for me. Mm-hmm. And yet, what I say to people when they ask me about my work is I go, it's, I'm really fortunate to have these jobs, but when you have to be somewhere doing a thing at a certain time so as to receive your pay, it is a job. Mm-hmm. It is Even if it's fun, it is a job. And so there are some weeks where it's a job, you know, it's like, oh, I've got to make sure I watch the show. And again, I try to take pretty careful notes. And it's not just like I'm sitting on my couch, vegging out, eating popcorn, just zoning out, being thoroughly entertained. My brain is is interpreting this information differently than it would, uh, you know, when I'm watching an episode of Top Chef or something. Mm-hmm, yeah. Uh, and so so all this is a setup to say, even though this is actually represented more work for us, just basically extra work that we wanted to do because we love this show. I'm sad that it's coming to an end. Yeah, me too. We have one more episode to watch. And by the way, you will watch it sooner rather than later. This is behind the scenes. But we're going to be recording our next episode merely oh, yeah. two days from now because of our so recording I schedule. I got it. So we'll watch it over the weekend. Um, I will say, and again, we can recap on our next episode, our final episode of recaps. Um, I'm so glad I rewatched this season hmm. in particular. Um, all jokes about my bad memory aside, I also think that I really was – I got so into season one and then I feel like I sort of – I don't know how you can 
rush through something as a viewer. I know there are books that I've rushed through and then they don't quite. But I just remembered like trying to jam them all in on the go, on a plane, while traveling, light probably coming in because whoever was sitting in the uh, <laughs> the window seat didn't mm-hmm. close their shade all the way. Whatever it was, me. there's so much stuff that I, that I missed and also I think chalked up to things not connecting. But for the most mm-hmm. part... Everything has connected. I still want to know what Nan's dad wanted to talk to her about, and I might have one other (laughs) question out there somewhere. But for the most part, things connected so much better than I remembered. It was just me kind of missing it or misremembering it. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a a really fascinating show. I'm not saying anything. Listeners haven't realized that's why they're listening to this program. But it is also very impressive the way that things really do kind of stitch back together. And um, and like I get a, like when I realize that John is in uh, Wallace Kandahar's vehicle mm-hmm. because you think to yourself like I mean and this is this is one of the things the show does really well too it's like if Wallace Kandahar doesn't drunkenly try to open the wrong car his car is at a different point in time and space mm-hmm. when John is riding his bicycle and so that that those two things don't intersect Tom Tavner. Uh, I guess maybe Tom still ends up at the ER because if John doesn't hit Wallace Kandahar, maybe he hits someone else. But you know what I mean? It's like these little moments that are just very well uh, represented and well rendered on the show. Like that moment of him trying to get in the wrong car is how, in a way, well, I I don't want to say it's how he gets shot at the end. But it's just, you know, everything is so intricately connected and these little moments make so much of a difference of five seconds here, five seconds there. Mm -hmm. Yep. All right. Well, on that profound piece of film critique from me, which uh, unfortunately my session at the um, the new school in oh, New no, York recently canceled. called movies. Aren't they great? Parenthetically, yikes! With Luke Burbank. (laughs) Ooh, that one burns. (laughs) It was a long title for my masterclass in filmmaking. Anyway, that's been canceled because of the coronavirus stuff. But um, I will be doing an online class later, so I hope all these people will join me for that because I think we can all agree my insight on film is um, it's pretty next level. What do we call this episode? Do we call it the threat to a get or halfway and one more step? Hmm. Wow. Um, You'll like last week's title, by the way. It's, I didn't come up with it. I got to give credit to my partner, Genevieve. I was really struggling. And then she came up with The Long and Winding Rove. Oh. I was so happy with that. Yes. To your door. Yes. That is a, that's a classic. That's Way a, to go, Veeves. Yep. Um, I don't know. What do, you, what do you think? I don't know. I can um, let it stew a little bit. Okay. Why don't you ask... Ask Genevieve which one sparks more joy yeah. for her since she clearly has a facility with these things. Uh, all right. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. We're going to be back here next week with the final installment of this. Until then, um, be safe, have fun, and uh, remember to keep it double great. Carry Hudson Hawk. In a jar and be better off than you are. Or would you rather be a mule? A mule is an animal with long, funny ears Kicks up at anything he hears His back is brawny, but his brain is weak He's just plain stupid with a stubborn streak And by the way, if you hate to go to school You may grow up to be a mule Or would you like to swing on a star?